Founders All Day IPA has helped bring you many Listen Money Matters episodes, and today they're sponsoring the show. Session boldly with the IPA that can hang as long as you can. Need to record eight episodes in a day or create a budget with your most important person? Founders All Day IPA will get you there. All Day Session Ale keeps your taste satisfied and your senses sharp, making it the perfect companion for adventure. Naturally brewed with a complex array of malts, grains, and hops, All Day IPA is balanced for optimal aromatics and a clean finish. Make All Day last even longer with a 15-pack. Visit AllDayIPA.com to find All Day IPA near you and start your adventure. Marketers, the age of the customer has arrived and Salesforce is with you for every step of your customer's journey with your brand. Blaze trails across your entire business to create one connected customer experience. With Salesforce, be smarter and more predictive with your marketing using an intelligent platform that integrates marketing with sales, service, and commerce by engaging your customers on any device and channel in real time. Learn more at salesforce.com money. Hey, what is up, everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. Most people work just hard enough not to get fired and get paid just enough money not to quit. My name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking today? I'm good, especially, it's 11, 11 a.m. right now, and I'm drinking. <laughs> oh, hey, make a wish. <laughs> um, I, I wish I had another beer. I, I'm drinking a... Sh- I'm sure sh- that wish could be granted. Actually, I have quite a lot more beers. <laughs> uh, I'm drinking. Okay. Hot. Before you say this, mm. I want to let the audience know that I did tell you, you how to pronounce this and <laughs> I want to hear if you can get it right. See, that, that's like my brain. Like you actually did tell me the right way to pronounce it, but my brain overrides everything. Uh, so Chifle. Schlafly. Schlafly. Ah, oh, man. Yeah. I just, I wouldn't, there was no chance I was going to get it right. Um, <laughs> it, it's their pumpkin ale. So uh, you're listening to this in November. It's September right now. So this is like super pumpkin creep, uh, but it's 8%. And I, I, I'm like throwing my, my hat in. This is, this is a top one. Like I, I taste, it tastes like liquid pumpkin cookies. It's delicious. Dude, there, there's nothing wrong with pumpkin creep. Mm. I mean, I, I kid you now, we are already planning on going to the orchard and the pumpkin patch, like ASAP pretty much. So in September, of course. Yeah, but there's nothing else to do in Iowa. So, I mean, we're basically sitting around in March being like, when is the pumpkin patch open? There's nothing else to do. So you go every week just to watch <laughs> the pumpkins grow. And then, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you show up and you like, you look at the dirt and you're like, I think I see something sprouting out of there. Like, oh, no, that was just a twig. But hey, that, you know, that's part of the excitement. While you guys do that, <laughs> are you drinking Schlafly's? See what I- of course. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have to cut you some slack because mm-hmm. I think I have actually. I may have had a Schlafly pumpkin ale on the podcast before. I don't remember, but I think I called it Schlafly. Mm. And then I was Amateur. listening to the Fizzle Amateur. Show recently, and uh, Steph said Schlafly, and I was like, huh, I suppose I should actually read the label on the bottle. Yep, it is indeed Schlafly. So good on you. I've got like one sip left in my latte, and then I'm going over water, which is the same thing our guest is drinking today. Mm. Uh, how's it going, Doug? Very good, thanks. I, I got to be on my a, my a game for you guys. Exactly. Well, I don't know where Andrew is. I mean, I guess the East Coast is magically five p.m. right now, but mm. we got to stick always with five water. p.m. in Hoboken. <laughs> so, Douglas, you've been on the show before um, about your book, Family Inc. And how, how long ago was that, Andrew? Was it like 
That wasn't too long ago, right? That was like two, three months, maybe. Yeah, it sounds about for, right. For when we were recording this right now, yeah. But uh, you also you do a lot of work with veterans and people in the armed forces. And because we're doing this episode for Veterans Day, uh, you wanted to talk about how veterans can better manage their finances and some of the differences between civilian life and and veteran and military life financially, right? You got it. Cool, cool. So I guess to start out with this, I mean, what are what's like the main big difference that somebody who's either in the armed forces or is a veteran has to think about? Yeah that I don't have to think about with their money. Yep. Yeah. First of all, I think the topic is much um, broader than simply money. It's about um, securing um, an economic future that you feel good about. And so, you know, veterans deal with different challenges than most of us deal with. I'll I'll just tick off a few to give you some examples. First of all, about 85% of veterans make a mid-career transition. Um, You know, veterans, while they're serving in active duty, often have to move frequently, and that creates an inability to have a a real professional network the way most of us do. Um, Many veterans, when they get out of service, they have family obligations that are a little bit more mature than Mm -hmm. their civilian counterparts. And the last is, you know, the, the um, professional opportunities for military spouses, uh, I think in general, as, as, a, as a, st- a stereotype, uh, is not equivalent to the professional opportunity that uh, civilian spouses are afforded. And so I think that's another significant consideration. So those are four. Um, th- there are others, but those are big ones. So you're saying that most people in the armed forces will make a career change during their time as active duty reserve, not, not when they're done? Yeah. Well, when I say career change, uh, they will transition out of the service prior to earning uh, benefits or, you know, prior to being able to retire. Okay. And just for people who don't know, and I I don't actually remember the details on this. I know retirement when you're in the military comes a little bit before 65, but what is what is the definition of it? It's uh, generally 20 years uh, is when you qualify for the military pension. And, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm ballparking here, but, you know, the preponderance of veterans get out, you know, kind of three to five year mark. Um, And it's so it's a pretty uh, steep pyramid, if you will, in terms of uh, the progression for those that stay in. And the people who get out three to five years, they don't get any form of pension or anything like that, right? You have to actually stay in? That's correct. That's correct. So, Douglas, you are a veteran. um, And and judging, I I just saw your face a few minutes ago. You don't look like you were in the service for 20 years. I was not. There you go. So so I got out um, after five years. Mm Mm-hmm. And made made the career transition that I think uh, you know many many veterans will be forced to make, and so uh, some of my um, beliefs are a product of my professional experiences, and some are a product of my personal experiences. Hmm. Having gone through that, uh, you know, being a veteran and leaving before the benefits kick in, uh, can you give us a, a bit of the why behind your story? Um, yeah, so so um, you know, I, I was. Uh, I went to uh, West Point, so I had an obligation to serve after I went to school, mm-hmm. and I uh, uh, did my service, and you know, I finished up in the mid-90s, and I think a couple things um, transpired for me. The first is, you know, candidly, I 
determined that I wasn't passionate about it. And the service is one of those things where, you know, it's a very demanding, challenging uh, career choice. And if you're not all in, it's really tough to, to excel and, and do well. And so I, over those five years, you know, determined that I'd like to try something else. And candidly, in the mid nineties, uh, as a young person, probably naively, I was convinced the peace dividend was alive and well, and that, um, you know, the, the traditional requirements of service were not going to be as important. Now, obviously that turned out to be uh, way wrong, but that was part of my belief uh, system. And one mm. of the reasons why I got out as well. So what what is the piece of it? And I haven't actually heard about that. Uh, basically, uh, you know, post uh, the collapse of communism, uh, you know, coming down of uh, uh, the Berlin Wall, uh, mm -hmm. The, the peace dividend essentially said that we weren't going to have uh, those kind of conflicts anymore and that governments could spend what they used to spend in uh, military expenditures into investments in infrastructure and home and benefits, et cetera. So mm. essentially what, it, what I was, what I believed in the mid nineties after Iraq one was that we were going to have a very um, benign uh, international uh, kind of uh, war climate, which has not been the case. Oh, okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah, and that that definitely did not happen. <laughs> exactly, given the amount that we can currently spend on stuff like that. So, what I'm really interested in is this question of how can people who are currently active duty set themselves up for success when they get out? Because I am actually an Air Force brat, and my parents met in the Air Force. Uh, specifically, my dad's story is he took the ASVAB. And for anyone who doesn't know, that's like the the SATs of the military, I'm guessing, something like that. I didn't know. Um, aptitude test. And he scored really high. And uh, at least the way he told to me is the, the commanding officer said, you can basically pick where you want to go, you know, in terms of what you study or where you work. And the field that he picked has high paying jobs in the civilian world. But at least when he was coming out of the military, all of that experience he had gained in the military really didn't count for anything in terms of qualifications and ability to get employment in that field in the civilian realm. So that's been the kind of stickling point in my mind is like, how can veterans utilize their experience and not fall into the trap of not being able to use their experience to transition to something when they're done? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so uh, lots of different uh answers to this. So I'll, I'll start and you just kind of take me where you want me to go. But I think uh, I look at there are four significant opportunities to dramatically change uh, someone's financial trajectory as they think about transition. One is the education choices they make, and we can talk about the GI Bill and, and how veterans can employ that. Mm -hmm. The second is uh, kind of the career choices that they make. Um, the third is financial literacy, and it's essentially a combination of making sure you understand how to manage your finances, but also that you've set yourself up a transition where you can afford to take some risk, because I think finding the best job requires a little bit of savings to maybe go without taking the mediocre job so you can wait for the best job. And then the last uh, real opportunity, I think, for the veteran community is pursuing entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is is a a very good match with the veteran skill set and uh, creating good wealth. So those are the four big categories and uh, I can answer questions on each one of them if you'd like me to. Cool. I mean, let's just start with the first one. I think the GI Bill is a pretty yeah. significant thing that most people at least know about in name. Uh, yeah, what I are think, the specifics people, people should know? Well, I think um, the first is, you know, um, almost 50% of vets getting out are taking advantage of the GI Bill now. So it is mm -hmm. a very popular program, very important. I think one of the things that I... Um, 
try to promote when people think about going back uh, and using their GI Bill. This is a significant asset. It's probably the largest asset that a veteran has at the time they leave service. You know, the benefits, if you if you were going to replicate those with money, would be well in excess of $50,000. It's essentially four years full wow. aid education. So they need to think about it like an investment. They're not going to college for free. Uh, they earned those benefits, and they need to think about it like a scarce resource. Uh, yeah. you know, the second, the second is um, you got to be thoughtful about what college you're going to. The graduation rates and the placement rates are very different depending on what college, and not all careers are created equal. Uh, and so, choosing you know science and mathematics and uh, things that have a quantitative background are going to pay more than generally liberal arts educations. And I think the other big piece of advice that, that I think is important for Vest to consider is um, once you've committed to that, you've got to get through school as quickly as possible. And what I mean by that is most vets, uh, they're a bit more mature. They have more mature family situations, and there's real opportunity cost to staying in college. So. Yeah. Probably unlike you, well, you got out of high school, you had no obligations, you went four years, maybe five years, you know, veterans often come out with families and the ability to compress that time to get back out into the job market is important. Mm -hmm. And actually that was, that was kind of what I wanted to ask is, you know, if you're going into college and you've got it paid for, for four years, uh, what, what's the big difference between you and an 18 year old kid who's also going into college, you know, I guess the the more mature family situation is probably the big one, right? Yeah, I think that's the the biggest one. You know, um, these are rough numbers, but uh, almost sixty percent of uh, veterans that are back in school report having um, some kind of dependent. Um, really, they're they're in their late twenties, um, and so yeah, it's it's a different uh, dynamic in in terms of uh, the need to get back out into the workforce. I was. Uh in college, I had a really good friend um, who I met through my fraternity. He was a veteran. I was maybe 18 at the time, and I think he was like 30. Um, but his maturity, and he, we went through the same class and stuff. His maturity, he dominated at pretty much everything where I was just like a stupid young kid. <laughs> so I definitely see, like, yeah. obviously the responsibilities um, put, uh, you know, expedite, you know, and, and a little fire under your ass to get going. Yeah. But I think yeah. the maturity is a huge benefit. Yeah, um, totally agree. Totally agree. Just one other point there too. The the GI Bill is structured such that you have 15 years to use it. Mm -hmm. And it's not as if you go and you complete your college education that it goes away. So you may want to use it, um, you know, further down the road for a different um, skill set. So, Douglas, I want to. Can you uh, split it? Actually, that's a good question. Before we, can you split your GI Bill? Yes. Like, could absolutely. you go to trade school, get an electrician degree, work there, and then you know put the rest of it to two years in a economics degree, ten years down the line? Absolutely. It's actually pretty broadly structured, so you could also use it to uh, get certifications. Um, so oh, okay. there's a variety of things you can do with the GI Bill other than simply apply to a four-year institution. Oh wow. Interesting. Are there any kind of educational opportunities for when you're currently active duty? Can you take night classes or anything like that to sort of accelerate? Yes. Um, and I think a lot of vets do that. I, I generally am a fan, but there, there are some risks. Um, one of the things that I mentioned is, is a challenge with vets transition is they're forced to move around a lot. And so a lot of times, um, you know, active duty soldiers will get permission to take a course. Uh, but then the challenge is they have to uh, deploy to a new unit. And those credits may transfer, they may not. And so it can be challenging in terms of uh, assembling a body of course credits that get you to your graduation. 
would it be better for somebody who thinks they may be moved around a lot to do maybe online classes instead of taking a local class? Yeah, I think that's a really viable um, viable option if, if um, you know, you kind of have the study habits and the learning um, uh, approach that that works well for you. Okay. And then one thing on my mind, not really related to education, but I, I bet you we have a few people listening to our podcast who are maybe 17, 18 years old thinking about going into the military. What is the, is there like a pressure to get into a long-term relationship that the military creates or like, what's the reason that you have so many people with a dependent coming out of the armed forces? Is that normal or is it higher than, than uh, civilians? You know, um, um, marriage rates are modestly higher, uh, in service mm-hmm. than without. And I think it is a little bit of a, this is, there's no right or wrong here. As my opinion is there is a little bit of a culture that, um, the service values family. Uh, and the second thing is I think, um, you know, the, the service experience is one that is uh, very challenging. And I think there's a, there it's, it's comforting to have someone significant in your life that can share those experiences with you. Okay. So, I mean, like, I, I guess, would you recommend waiting for financial reasons or do you think it's okay um, to still pursue that and then just take the challenges as they come? Yeah. So I would say it this way. Uh, if you ask me on a, from a financial perspective only, the best advice to um, active duty service members and veterans, I think, is delay your family decisions, uh, mm-hmm. both both significant you know relationships with your spouse as well as um, uh, children until you've navigated your career transition. Now that's the best financial answer. That may not be the best personal answer. And so everybody's kind of got to overlap those competing demands, but that certainly gives you the most flexibility. Gotcha. I want to jump back before we go to the the number two, I want to maybe like tie a bow on, on um, the education and the GI bill piece. Uh, Thomas had brought up a good point and I think it applies to many people where they're leaving the service and their skills don't, directly relate to like some job you know in, in civilian life um but they have this gi bill so they can get educated on anything um how do you choose what you should go in and i, I know you said math and sciences and those pay the best and they're super sexy uh but if you're if you're not you know if you don't have some prior experience in those realms that's definitely definitely like scary to get in there should you go uh to your least comfortable spot should you try and find something that marries your existing experience with future income yeah so um I'm going to key off one thing you said early on here, which is that a lot, you know, when veterans get out, they don't really have skills that are relevant for the private sector. I would actually argue they have a lot of skills that are very relevant. However, we don't do a good job of teaching veterans how to translate what they've done in a way that employers can understand it. So I'll give you my own personal example. So um, I was a rifle platoon leader in the infantry in the army. And so um, we have an, an OER, which is my officer evaluation report. And in there, it used to give me, uh, it used to define what your job description was. And so it said things like, I managed 30 uh, soldiers and I managed a million dollars worth of equipment, which included uh, various types of weapon systems and 
communication systems. And so my first resume was that. And I thought that made a lot of sense that people would understand that I managed a million dollars worth of equipment and that I had managed 30 soldiers. And what I um, with some counseling, what I realized is employers didn't know how to translate those valuable skills into something that, that they could directly use. Mm-hmm. But really what a veteran brings is they bring tremendous leadership experience. They bring program managing experience. They bring you know, discipline and teamwork and communication skills. And ultimately, I think that's what employers pay for. And there may be some specific skills, but it's really about the, the soft skills. So let me, let me jump to your other question, though, about what kind of uh, – careers or, or curriculums to pursue. Um, I think there's the question of what pays the best and how you overlay that with your passions and your aptitude. Mm-hmm. And so for, for me, I don't recommend anybody pursue a particular um, curriculum. I recommend that they make the choice understanding the economic consequences. Uh, and so I think it's broader than simply math and sciences, though, you know, business degrees get paid much better than educational degrees, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're passionate about being a teacher, then that may be a very good choice, but at least you've gone through the analysis to conclude that you're willing to make that choice. Yeah. So th- to me, this sounds like the same thing that anyone should do, just with the difference that Number one, you have the GI Bill, but number two, maybe you're a bit accelerated in uh, personal obligations. Because I think everyone should make these these kinds of uh, analyses with their I, career. I I totally agree with you. Like uh, the advi- some of that advice applies to everybody. I think the unique context is vets have this significant asset, um, which they need to figure out how to maximize the benefit of that asset. Mm. And the opportunity cost is greater because they're older and they have more kind of outside responsibilities. Okay. Would you suggest them to move towards something that's more leadership or management driven? I mean, uh, by by day, I'm just a, a lowly programmer. I got paid well, but I'm certainly not a, a team lead or anything. I mean, uh, if they were to make a choice, do you, would you say go with something that makes you extremely uncomfortable, um, but possibly has huge upside? Or, or uh, yeah, I mean, how, how would you recommend they approach it? No, because at the end, I. I my general view is um, if you're not passionate about something, you're not going to be very good at it, even if you have the aptitude. And so, you know, my recommendation is, first of all, I think leadership skills are rare. And so I think that is a relatively differentiated um, skill set that veterans bring to the table. Um, but you got to figure out how to deploy those leadership skills with a technical field that you also enjoy. And I, w- I would tell you, though, I think, you know, the, the opportunity set to deploy leadership exists in any field, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it's education or business or science, there's an opportunity to leverage that leadership experience. Okay. So I know that, you know, you can go active duty, maybe you do a tour, you're deployed somewhere, but there are also opportunities for actually having like a, a regular job role in the States when you're active duty. So now there's a choice to basically extend your time in the armed forces, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I think my friend had a, he had to do four years in the Marines and then he could choose to stay or leave after that. Yep. So is it advisable for someone if they maybe haven't done something super skilled in their time 
to extend so they could get some skills that may transfer or is it better to just transfer out if you aren't completely gung ho about staying in? Yeah, I think, I think it's less about the career skills and more about, are you excited about the opportunity to serve still? Do you mm-hmm. still enjoy the service and the army or the Navy? And if you do, then I think that's a great choice. Um, yeah. but I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that choice and acquire additional skills simply because I thought it was preparing me for a better professional opportunity. I think you can go do that and replicate it with the GI bill at school. Okay. Support for this podcast comes from Salesforce. Salesforce helps marketers get smarter about their customers and plan better campaigns that blur the lines between marketing, sales, commerce, and service, all in the name of customer success. Salesforce powers marketing for the world's most innovative brands, from tailored emails to engaging mobile apps, social media, and targeted ads. Salesforce helps marketers blaze a trail for the brand journeys their customers want. That's great marketing, made by you at Salesforce. Connect to your customers in a whole new way. See a demo at salesforce.com slash money. So I, I want to jump into this spouse area. And I think you brought up an awesome point that, that really doesn't get discussed much is that the spouses, because they're moving, um, don't really get a hold down like a job and it makes it difficult. They're maybe looking for a job as, as often as they are working a job. Um, yet this is another person who is, you know, an equal and can earn well on their own. How, how do you handle this so that they can also contribute, um, and manage all the movement? Yeah. So, so let's just talk about the problem or the, the, uh, some of the current situation, because I think it's important to frame this conversation. So in my mind, this is one of the single biggest opportunities to promote, you know, kind of um, veteran economic stability is to create a better professional uh, ecosystem for spouses. Uh, and so I'll give you a couple statistics. There's an organization called Blue Star Families that uh, did a big research study. But what they concluded was that uh, military spouses were um, 43% of military spouses do not participate in the workforce compared to about 26% of civilian spouses. Uh, of spouses in the military that are pursuing employment, 18% cannot find a job compared to the equivalent statistics in, in civilian world is about 5% unemployment. And equally important, for those that do get employed, 35 to 40% are characterized as underemployed, which essentially means given their skill sets and their, their age and their capabilities, we would expect them to make X, but they're making you know substantially less given their circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a really big um, problem and then you overlay the fact that um, you know most uh, families, many families in America today, are dual-income families. That didn't used to be the case, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But as as it's evolved, this has become a more pronounced uh, problem in the service. And then um, we talked about this mid-career transition. 85% of vets will make a career transition. And if we've created good economic opportunity for the spouse, that obviously makes the transition a lot easier. So I think this is a really big opportunity um, for us to positively impact the veteran community is, is promoting um, job opportunities for spouses. 
Well, how do you how do you do that? I mean, obviously they're struggling on their own. I mean, I, I don't want to say like they're ah, they're not trying. Like they're they're obviously trying and not getting anywhere near the level of of what civilians are getting. And and then maybe to kind of tack on another one, what can the the active duty or or veteran do to kind of help them? Um, yeah. So, so first of all, um, I think there's a lot of reasons on why this exists, and I, I don't know that it's you know it's it's fact or opinion, but I think part of it is a cultural issue. I think um, you know, when you say culture issue, you mean like uh, the military almost discourages spouses from working. I don't. I don't think it's that they discourage spouses from working, but I think that the the uh, you know the the veteran or the active duty soldier has a job obligations which often make. Uh, the spouse working hard to manage the collective family responsibilities. Mm. Um, and, you know, they deploy frequently. So it's kind of hard to maybe have a job when your husband or your wife is deployed very regularly. Uh, yeah. The fact the fact that they are caused to move frequently, you know, you change posts the longer you stay in. So if you're caused to relocate every two or three years, that obviously creates a, a more challenging environment to build a significant career. So, you know, lots of reasons on why this may exist. I think there are a number of ways that, you know, as a nation, we can address this. First of all, I don't think it's a military problem only. I think this is a corporate America issue as well. Um, so I believe it, it starts with financial literacy training um, mm -hmm. so that the spouse is the most likely person to be, in my, in my vernacular, the chief financial officer of the family. And so, you know, DOD and the Army helping spouses uh, effectively assume that role, I think, is an important element of it. Um, you know, we currently counsel veterans when they get out about how to go find a job. I think we need to counsel spouses when they when they join the service, essentially through their relationship with the, with the active duty soldier, how to think about managing a career while your spouse is on active duty. Because I think yeah. there are certain careers that are more likely to be employable, and having a, an understanding of how to use the military resources to get a job, I think, is an important element of this. When when you say military resources, what, what do you mean? Like uh, the job networks, or? Well, I think I mean I think there's uh, you know job counseling, understanding what jobs are available on the post that your um, you know your spouse is stationed that you may be eligible for is mm -hmm. is an important example. Um, understanding that you know, for example, um, the education field is a really good field uh, if you're. Um, partner is an active duty veteran because no matter where you move, you know, obviously you're going to need educators, you're going to need nurses and things like that. So that's a good example of, you know, mm. a profession that's highly employable no matter where you move. Um, you know, I think there's another element of this, though, which is we create all these benefits for veterans, like the GI Bill, for example, um, like preferences in government contracting for veterans. I believe if we really think about it appropriately, spouses should be eligible for those things too. Yeah, um, We're really trying to create financial security for the veteran family, not just the veteran. Well, I was going to ask, are there any educational benefits or scholarships out there that are specifically for spouses of service members? Um, so I'm sure there are scholarships, um, but I would tell you that the way I believe the current GI Bill works is under certain circumstances, you can transfer that benefit to your dependents, uh, like your kids. Oh, okay. I don't believe it's uh, available to, to transfer to a spouse, mm -hmm. um, but I think that would be – I think that's an, an interesting um, policy change that, that has some merit. 
So there's one thing I want to bring up here um, because I, I go on Pinterest a lot. <laughs> there's actually a lot of these military wife blogs that just kill it on Pinterest. So I end up on some of them sometimes. And there's this one I remember that I'm looking at right now. Um, this girl, she's a military wife and she wanted to go to college and she wanted to go to an out of state college, which meant she was going to have to pay out of state tuition. But she says right here in her post, she emailed the advisor and said, Hey, I'm a military wife. Is there anything that I can do in terms of benefits? And apparently that exempted her from paying out of state tuition. Really? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, I believe, um, you know, when you move into a new state and you're there because uh, a family member is, is in service, I believe essentially that establishes state residency for things like mm -hmm. education. Um, but, but, you know, Pinterest, your, your example is a great one of the kind of career that a spouse can manage no matter where they are located geographically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, Andrew and I both know how tough it is to start making money when you're doing like online content, but I have seen a, quite a few of those military spouse blogs that do pretty well. So yeah. in fact, I think there's a couple of them that go to FinCon and I've met some of the people who run them. So maybe, uh, let's, let's talk about entrepreneurship a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. and I mean, I'm obviously very, very interested in that. Uh, and I think everyone listening knows, but, uh, one example to, to maybe, uh, wh whatever. One example that sticks out of my mind of an entrepreneur is this guy, John Lee Dumas. He's very successful. You know, people feel all different ways about him, but he's a veteran and he mm -hmm. took his uh, discipline from being a veteran and he basically was ridiculously focused and created one of the largest podcasts you know, in the early days of podcasting and now makes it like a stupid amount of money. Um, what type of entrepreneurship opportunities do you see? And, and like, what can veterans bring to the table that most people can't? Mm -hmm. So, so first of all, let me tell you why I think vet uh, entrepreneurship is such an interesting area for veterans. Um, you know, first of all, I think for all of us, it's one of the surest ways to wealth creation. You know, we talked about that on, on the last show. Uh, but for veterans, I think it's particularly interesting because in some time, in some cases, like your father, Tom, um, when the, when the private market doesn't create the opportunity that you think you deserve, I think entrepreneurship is a, is a way to go create that opportunity yourself. Um, yeah. and I also think vets have some, some pretty unique skills and we kind of touched on some of these. It's, it's, uh, discipline. It's uh, communication skills. It's the ability to be a leader, be a team player, to manage a team, um, you know, and this persistence concept. So I think a lot of those life skills that you learn in the service um, are very well suited for being a successful entrepreneur. I'm wondering if, you know, we've got the GI Bill for helping education for veterans. Are there any sorts of... I don't know, business funding programs or other beneficial programs for veterans that help with getting businesses off the road or off the ground? Yeah. So, uh, and there's some really interesting innovations that are happening here. First of all, um, we are starting to do a better job of teaching entrepreneurship in terms of some of the basic skills, but also introducing vets to the concept um, mm -hmm. through the transition process out of service. So for example, um, the Institute for Veterans and Military Families offers uh, a program called Boots to Business, which is essentially a transition program when vets get out of service where they can learn about entrepreneurship and really uh, get some of the basic tools to start their own business. Mm -hmm. um, 
There's also uh, an organization that I'm a big fan of called Bunker Labs, and Bunker Labs is essentially um, designed to uh, create a network to support veterans as they evaluate um, the prospects for entrepreneurship. Um, And then the Small Business Administration has a number of programs to support veterans in this endeavor, Um, you know, things like... uh, training, counseling, but also they, they try to make um, access to capital a little bit easier for startups. Okay. And, and the last thing I would, would highlight is, you know, it's not capital, but, um, you know, the Department of Defense and the federal government has created preferences in government contracting that allow veterans to get slightly preferential treatment. And so all those things collectively, in my mind, lower the barriers to entry in a way that, um, you know, vets have a, a pretty decent shot of, of getting something off the ground mm-hmm. and not taking a lot of capital to do it. Yeah. How much downtime do you have as a service member? Cause I'm uh, wondering, you know, what, what kind of, what kind of lead time can you get in learning something or maybe trying to get something off the ground or some pieces in place while you're still in the service? I think it's really hard to be honest. Um, yeah, because I think, you know, for most vets, um, it's a very demanding uh, professional choice. So, you mm-hmm. know, your, your full-time job is, is the service. And, you know, you, you cannot underestimate the challenge of creating the right professional network when you're required to move every couple of years. Right. And so I think that's an important element of it, too. The, the thing I would encourage people to do as they think about entrepreneurship is the, the one really th- big problem that I see is that people don't feel like they have the financial flexibility to pursue entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of veterans, when they get out of service, it's like, not only do they not have the luxury of finding the best job, they just need to find the job quickly. Yeah, And yeah. they end up taking the highest paying job as opposed to the job that has the most opportunity. And mm-hmm. so for, for me, I think that implies that, you know, veterans, the day you start in service, you need to make sure you're preparing your balance sheet such that you have the flexibility to pursue the career you really want to when you get out. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, to give another example, because I know, Andrew, you mentioned John. Mm. My friend Sean, um, I think he started teaching himself how to code while he was still active duty. And when he came out, he was able to do freelance web design for people. and did, did that for a while. And in fact, my website is built on a platform that he coded and created himself. And he's not running his own business anymore, but now he's like employee number three at this really fast growing startup, which is pretty cool. So, you know, and I, I get, I get what you're saying, Douglas, with the whole, you know, having to move around a lot, your professional network is, is broken up and it's challenging to establish that when that happens. I do think there are probably a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity online if that's kind of what you're inclined to do. Yeah. Um, as long as there's just like, if you have some free time. Yeah, to work on it. I agree, and I think you know the the whole um, the whole personal education of if I really want to be an entrepreneur, let's make sure I really know what I want to do and mm-hmm. begin to acquire some of those skill sets. I think is totally fair game and and probably time well spent. Yeah, you know uh, this this word entrepreneurship. It's like just thrown around all the time, and I mean I, I almost feel like it's lost all of its value. Um, we're, we're talking about entrepreneurship, starting businesses, but Douglas, can you kind of maybe explain what it might mean for a veteran or how they could get started? Because it's, it's very pie in the sky, the way we discuss it. Um, but I, I think there's like, uh, tried and true paths to actually doing it. 
Yeah. Well, I, I find, you know, back, back to the, the comment about how do we leverage the experiences in service into a business. I find that most, most of the entrepreneurs that I interact with that are veterans um, directly transition into serving the government. And so, you know, if you, for example, if you've been a 20 year professional in helping uh, the Department of Defense manage logistics, mm. well, obviously when you get out, they still hire a lot of civilians that do those kind of projects. And so, you know, those are the kind of situations where you've, in my mind, you've developed a very relevant skill set in service and you're simply providing that same service from a different platform uh, when you get out. Um, And, and, you know, I think, I think for many vets, um, it is intimidating, you know, to the thought of starting your own business. And I think really, um, you know, very simplistically, it's just about, um, providing your, you know, combining your capital with your skill sets, uh, to, you know, to bill out. So you don't have one employer, but you have a number of employers and we call those customers. Mm. Mm. So how exactly to give an example, did your path work out in that? Cause I mean, you're doing pretty much entrepreneurship now too. So, yeah. So, so, um, you know, this gets back to this whole concept of financial flexibility. So, I got out in my late twenties. Um, I was married. I had my first child, and I ended up going back to business school. And you know, candidly, had I not had my parents, who were very supportive of that investment, and them being able to help me a little bit, I think I would have probably tried to just get a job. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it gets back to I, I see in my own um, path the financial flexibility that allowed me to pursue a degree in business at Harvard was what was a really, um, you know, meaningful point in my career progression. Um, you know, and then I, I spent, uh, you know, 10 years, um, in some kind of investing capacity and mm-hmm. learned the business. And then ultimately after being an employee for 10 years and learning the business, I decided it was, um, you know, best to start my own. And so with a couple partners, uh, we started a firm about 10 years ago. And so I think that's a very common evolution. You know, you, you acquire an education, you practice in the field that you're passionate about until you acquire skills. And then at some point you acquire, you know, enough, um, financial, uh, resources combined with those skills that all of a sudden it doesn't look so risky to start your own thing. Yeah. Was there any thought in your head of being an entrepreneur right when you left? Uh, did you this know, only come about? No, first of all, to Andrew's point, um, the, the ubiquitous nature of the term has, has, is so not what it used to be. So I don't really think I had been exposed to the term entrepreneurship until I got back to business school. Mm. So the concept had never really, um, uh, been something that was on my mind, uh, really until I'd been in the business for a number of years and then ultimately, you know, decided I'd rather be a business owner than an employee. Yeah. Douglas, you are so non-promotional. Uh, we, we, we interview tons of people, and I, like, I'm always <laughs> bracing myself for like the slick mention of their book or the this. <laughs> you, just, you just told us your path, and you said you started a firm. You didn't even give us the firm's name. What, what do you do? Yes. So I currently work in an investment firm. It's called HCI Equity. I founded it about uh, 10 years ago with two partners and we manage um, money for institutions. So foundations, pension funds, insurance companies, and we are buying and and selling private companies. Um, And so it's a it's a niche 
um, it's a niche investment strategy that makes a lot of sense for very large um, organizations that are looking for higher returns, but also diversification. Gotcha. I, I want to even extend it a little further because, like, I know that you're down, uh, you're you're donating thousands of books to veterans and students, um, and all the royalties that you're getting from these books, you're also yeah. donating. Dude, what? Why? I mean, like, that's that's awesome. But like, can you tell well, us a story? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, well, so first of all, just uh, the, so the real quick pitch on the book, it's called Family Inc. Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Wealth. And I wrote this book because I think it's one of the biggest problems in America today. Uh, the financial game of life that your parents and your grandparents lived is wholly different from the one you will live. And the skills to be successful um, are much harder today than they used to be. And so my, the book is my attempt at giving people a roadmap to navigate that financial game of life. Um, as we've talked about, I think there are a lot of reasons why the veteran community has unique challenges. And so I'm, you know, on a personal mission to, uh, you know, go help uh, the community address those challenges. And, you know, I think, um, you know, as, as a, for me personally, this has been a very gratifying opportunity. I've, um, my experience in service was a real, instrumental thing for me and I'm, I'm appreciative of the opportunity and I also took a lot away from it and so this is my opportunity to give back a little bit so I will resonate with you the the it, it is super rewarding for me and I imagine for Thomas as well just doing this stuff and I love it um you you wrote this book on financial literacy and then one of the things I think we had talked about before we were recording is that uh, the meaning of that is a little different for, for veterans and people in the service than civilians. Uh, could, could you elaborate? Yeah. Um, you know, I think you know, the, the whole premise of the book is that financial independence must be holistic. And most financial advisors, you know, they only focus on your financial capital. In Family Inc., I focus on all the assets that a family has. And one of those biggest assets is your labor. And so for veterans, the big message that I have for them is you have real wealth when you leave the service and it's your labor, it's your skills, and it's the brand you've created uh, by successfully you know, uh, serving our nation. And if you look at it that way, you know, I think there's a very um, attractive path to financial security and wealth for veterans too. I actually, I just freaking love that concept, the whole family as a business unit with labor being the, be the biggest asset. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it is, it is the single biggest asset, um, that most of us have. And if you don't get your labor decisions, right, no matter how well you save or how well you invest, it's going to be a real challenge to create the financial security you're looking for. And so I, for me, it all starts there. Awesome. You know, there are going to be a lot of people who are veterans or in the service and either they're really humble and, and they just don't believe that they are as valuable or have the skills uh, that, that they do or, or they just doubt because they haven't been in, you know, quote unquote, the real world. Uh, what, what would you say to these people or how do you kind of get over that hump? Oh, well, so so two things. The first is, and if, if you ask me what weaknesses do I see in veterans that are transitioning, one of the biggest weaknesses is an unwillingness to be a little bit self-promotional. And, and you know, we talked about this mm -hmm. earlier. You know, veterans are used to 
the the service environment where it's all about team and it's all about contributing um, without putting yourself first, and that's a real asset. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, in the business world, it's a little bit different, and you need to be able to confidently tell people what you've accomplished, and that's not uh, bragging. That's um, clearly articulating what you have to offer, and so I think yeah. that's a big area that I would encourage veterans to um, proactively promote, uh, what they've accomplished and what they've done. You know, the second is, um, veterans when they get out are a little bit behind in some of the things that other professionals have acquired in terms of experience in the business world, but they've acquired the important skills, which gets back to leadership and teamwork and discipline. And so my, my own view is you learn those business skills pretty quickly. Um, yeah. And if you got the leadership and the discipline and the teamwork, you'll be well set. Yeah, I would say just from my limited experience working in a you know big corporation, the soft skills were much more important for just overall success because they taught me basically every hard skill I needed to learn for the job. I mean, there, there was obviously a, a somewhat of a foundation of computer knowledge, but here's the documentation, Thomas, here's the processes, do these things, uh, and you get good at them through practice. So I really do think a lot of those softer skills, leadership, teamwork, that kind of stuff, it really comes in handy and it would be beneficial to view yourself in that light when you're looking for a job. Yeah. And I think usually when, um, you know, a company hires a veteran, they realize there's a modest investment up front to teach mm -hmm. some of those specific skills. And so I, I think um, I understand why people have anxiety about it. But in the long run, they'll be very successful based on those other attributes they have. Yeah. So, Douglas, if people want to find your book or connect with you, is there a place online they can go to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So, again, the title is Family Inc. Uh, there's a website called familyinc.com, not surprisingly, and it's uh, carried on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And so, uh, you know, hopefully uh, people find it to be a valuable resource here as they think about transitioning from service uh, and also if they, as they think about their, their financial plan if they've not been in the service. Cool. And if you buy the book, it literally supports, I mean, not literally, it actually supports veterans. Yeah, no, there's some great organizations out there that I'm, I'm donating royalties to, and um, I'm really um, just excited about the mandate that they're pursuing in terms of helping veterans make the most of their opportunities. Yeah. Douglas, well, thanks for being on the show, and thank you for all the help you do uh, for our service members. Yeah, awesome, guys. Really appreciate the time to tell the story. Thank you. Yeah. Cool, guys. Well, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If you have questions, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com is our email address. You can shoot them over to us over there. And uh, if you want to find our favorite books, resources, apps, tools, all the things you need to manage your money more easily, listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox is where you can find all of that. So thanks for listening once again, and we'll see you in next week's episode. Later, guys. Later, man. Tell your friends about this show. Salesforce helps marketers get smarter about their customers and plan better campaigns that blur the lines between marketing, sales, commerce, and service, all in the name of customer success. That's great marketing, made by you at Salesforce. Connect to your customers in a whole new way. See a demo at salesforce.com money.